Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. Michelle O'Connell's body was exhumed and new evidence was unearthed. Two years after Michelle's second autopsy, a stranger watched a PBS documentary about her case and was compelled to try to solve it. Eli Washtock contacted Michelle's mother to see how he could help. Pretty soon after first emailing Patty O'Connell, Eli's investigation was in full swing. He hired all kinds of experts and was pretty deep into the case. Here is an email Eli sent Patty after meeting at the St. John's Sheriff's Office. He wrote, quote, Patty, overall, things were really good at St. John's Sheriff's Office on Thursday. As you know, we took a multidimensional approach to finding new evidence. Private investigators, social media investigation, surveillance, only to name a few. And we have surrounded ourselves with highly intelligent, very capable people and a forensic evaluation still to come. You are all in my prayers, Eli." Unquote. Eli Washtock never lived to see the conclusion of the forensic evaluation he ordered. It was a bloodstain pattern analysis conducted by Anna Cox, forensic science expert. When we first started working on this story, we contacted Anna Cox to see if she could complete her report. She said yes. This is evidence which Eli believed was a bombshell and has never been examined by authorities. You're hearing it first here. Eli Washtock believed he had game-changing evidence in his Michelle O'Connell death investigation. He was most likely referring to a bloody shirt lying on the daybed above Michelle's head. Could this shirt have stopped the blood from flowing above Michelle's lip? The bloody shirt was another unexplained key piece of evidence that the crime scene technicians failed to collect at the scene. The shirt is gone. It was most likely disposed of after they cleared the scene. Let's describe it for the listeners. The shirt is grayish blue and has a blood-soaked stain about the diameter of a coaster. Why didn't anyone at the scene see this bloody shirt? I mean, so many people have looked into this case, including Rusty Rogers with FBLE, and nobody spotted this shirt in the photos? Eli Washtock spotted it, and that's why he was so excited to have Anna Cox examine the scene photos. I think the reason the bloody shirt didn't jump out at anyone is because naturally, there's blood everywhere. But this shirt is significant because its location is in a spot where there's no logical explanation as to why it would have blood on it. I asked Anna Cox what she thought about the bloody shirt. Talk about the blue shirt, what kind of conclusions or things that you could determine about this blue shirt and kind of where it was, those kinds of things. Well, the blue shirt, she was laying on the floor with her head just below a blanket that was on top of a, what I call a daybed. You can see the blood, you can see a dark shadow in one of the pictures um, that were taken originally, but you can't see how defined it is until you actually look at the photographs that were taken from different angles by the crime scene technician. But is it your opinion that there was blood on that shirt prior to her being moved? Yes. Anna Cox indicated that from the scene photos, she could very clearly see blood on the shirt. I think you described it as saturation, like a saturation stain. So talk about how you think that there could be a shirt that is not in contact with her at the time. It's up on the bed. How that saturation stain could have occurred. The only way that a saturation can occur is if the item comes into contact with liquid blood such that the blood is absorbed 
into the material. In other words, if the shirt is soaked with blood, it has to come in direct contact with the blood. She uses the process of elimination to determine the source. The first thing you look at is the location of the textile itself. It was on the bed. There was no blood on that bed that could have caused the saturation that I saw from the shirt. So you can exclude the day bed as the blood source. So now you have to look at the scene. Where is the blood at the scene? Well, prior to Michelle being moved, the blood at the scene is confined to her face, her sides of her face, the floor underneath her head, a green shirt lying next to the right side of her head, and the carpet underneath her head. And that's it. There is no other source for saturation stain except that very distinct area. So that shirt had to have come in contact with that area or Michelle at some point. If you look at the entire Michelle O'Connell death scene, there was only one location that could saturate an item with blood, the gunshot wound to Michelle's head. Would the shirt be saturated with blood if it touched Michelle's head briefly? No, the shirt needed to be either in contact with Michelle's head or mouth for a long period of time, or it had to be underneath her head for some time. Does that mean it was a homicide, or could it still point towards suicide? I think it's open to interpretation, but based on Jeremy Banks' description of what happened and what he did, there's no explanation for how the shirt could have become saturated with blood and ended up on the daybed. I think Jeremy has some questions to answer. Anna Cox also found what appeared to be blood on the gun's light. Remember during the FDLE investigation, the lab reported finding no blood on the gun. However, when we look at the same photos, it's pretty clear that the gun is stained with blood. Now that Eli Washtock commissioned this blood spatter analysis, do you think it'll have any impact on the case? It's highly unlikely, but with new evidence and a new sheriff on the horizon, there seems to be new hope in this case. Chris Strickland, a candidate for sheriff, says he would consider reopening this case if new evidence presents itself. The other major candidate, Rob Hardwick, who is backed by Sheriff Shore, declined to speak with us, so we don't know where he stands. Eli Washtock accomplished a lot during his investigation. Only time will tell if his work will lead to further action. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav bros. Good job.
There's no question that Eli Washtock's life was forever altered by his obsession with the Michelle O'Connell case. But what motivated him to stop his life and pour endless time and money into this case? He didn't even know Michelle. He had no experience investigating a criminal case. I asked Matt Utek, Eli's childhood friend, what he thought motivated Eli to solve this case. You know him out of his character. What do you think would have driven him to want to do this? You know, justice, that's it. Just he, he felt he was, someone was getting away with something they shouldn't have, and he thought he could help make it right. He's always been the type of guy that, you know, if we were out or hanging around, and if you saw someone getting picked on that, you know, getting bullied or whatever, Craig would, would step in and he'd protect someone that if he felt they were getting harassed, even if he didn't know them, just because it wasn't right. Eli Washtuck has been a mystery to us since the beginning of our investigation. I flew out to visit Eli's hometown of Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, to see if I could learn more about him. Beaver Dam, Wisconsin is a rural town of 15,000 people, a little over an hour northwest of Milwaukee. Its most well-known resident was the singer Bobby Hatfield of the Righteous Brothers. Beaver Dam is quite rural, and though it's close to both Madison and Milwaukee, it's still pretty isolated. It's a town where the biggest complaint from kids is boredom. According to the city's website, it recently ranked as the 16th safest city in the country. So when I met up with Eli's father, Jim Washtock, he was frustrated that his son was in danger and he wasn't there to help. If this is going on and somebody's threatening you, you go out and you get in the car and you drive north. What would be your explanation for why he would get I mean, I don't want to say obsessed, but pretty obsessed with this case. What would be your reasoning? I think because nobody could come up with anything conclusive. If somebody would come up with, some, with something conclusive that a, a Banks did this, and this is why right here, everybody missed this thing right here, that he would look really good and come out shining. Though Eli Washtock spent considerable time and money looking into Michelle's death, he didn't tell anyone in Wisconsin what he was doing. See, and I, I knew nothing about it. I, I asked his mother about it. I said, did he ever say anything to you when he was talking to you? She said, the only thing that he ever said to me is, Mom, you should know this, this lady. She's really had a lot of trouble. She's really nice. She's very religious. and You'd really like her. He's talking about Michelle's mom, Patty O'Connell, right? Yes. With the exception of that passing comment, nobody back home in Wisconsin knew what Eli was up to. Do you have any reason why he wouldn't have told people up here about it? I'm thinking the reason he didn't tell me is because I'd be thinking, well, shit, that's where all the money I'm giving you is going. <laughs> I guess we were kind of like partners in crime for majority of our youth. This is Eli's sister, Jessica Tiffany, talking about growing up with Eli. I can remember, you know, ice rinks on the backyard because we have a, we had a double lot. Winters were rough here and it was nothing but ice. So we would ice skate, riding bikes, you know, normal brother-sister arguments over shotgun. We always used to fight over who got to ride shotgun. With the long Wisconsin winters, most kids in Beaver Dam turned to the hockey rink. Here's Eli's dad, Jim Washtock, describing the first time his son, Eli, discovered hockey. They started out really lousy, really bad team. Ended up, they got a, they got a coach who just was positive and positive. Yeah, you're doing this, you're doing that. They ended up going to state. He was a goalie. We'd go all over the place. 
went to state and came in second that year. He was, he was just on top of things. He was the happiest, happiest kid I ever seen. Jim Washtock says that his son Eli lived for hockey. But all that changed when he got his license. When he wasn't stopping a 100 mile per hour slap shot on the ice, Eli's passion turned towards cars. I spoke with Eli's mom, Linda Washtock, on the phone about Eli as a kid. Well, he didn't like school much. He liked sports. He played little league baseball. He was on um, a hockey team for years. He was the goalie. When he got into his teen years, he liked school even less and even ended up dropping out of school and got a job in an auto body place. How old was he when he dropped out of high school? I think 17. What were your thoughts at the time when he dropped out of high school? Well, wasn't pleased at all. But he got, he did have, he went and got a job though. Right. He liked working on cars and that's, he found a job in an auto body and made that his career. He even worked on cars in our garage. We put a heater in the garage so he could redo automobiles in the garage. Here's Eli's dad talking about how Eli met his children's mother, Katrina Van Knocker. I, I believe he met her in Wisconsin. Talk about how he met Katrina. I think it was through school. High school? Uh, yeah, high school. Yeah. They were together for quite a while. They were, they were always together, pretty much. Whenever you'd see one, you'd see the other. Even if it was at the shop and, and be ran there where he was working, she would, she'd be up there too. Though Eli dropped out of high school, by his early 20s, he opened his own body shop in Beaver Dam. He and Katrina seemed to be settling into small-town life in Wisconsin. The couple had a son in 2003 and a daughter in 2007. He'd, he'd do anything for his kids, uh, anything to help them out. He looked after him. He was a good dad, a very good dad. With the long winters and isolation in rural Wisconsin, moving away from Beaver Dam is not something people there question. Here's Jessica, Eli's sister, talking about the idea of leaving their small town. I, I think everybody here, at least during my generation, majority of us, you know, as soon as you turn 18, you get the heck out of Dodge, and forgive the pun, because we live in Dodge County, but that's, you know, that's there's not a lot here as far as aspiring goals. It's a lot of manufacturing and plant work or grocery store retail, so. Eli's dad talked about Eli's decision to move to Florida. They went on vacation a couple times down to St. Augustine when he was living here in Beerham and had the shop yet. And uh, shop wasn't doing very well. Him and Katrina would vacation down there for a couple of weeks. And finally they came back one time and they said, you know, I think we're going to move down there. We really like it down there. It's peaceful. It's really nice. The weather's nice. I, I didn't want him to go. His mother didn't want him to go. You know, they, they moved, they picked up stuff, and they, they moved down there. They were down there for a few years, and Katrina got homesick and uh, moved back home with the kids. Craig wanted to stay down there by himself, and he did for about eh, maybe a year or two, and then he moved back up to Beaverdam so he could keep an eye on the kids. He didn't like it up here at all. He just didn't like it. He wanted to go back to Florida. 
So he did. Uh, he moved back down there by himself. That's when he moved to Laterra. Remember, Eli's birth name was Craig, so his family and friends from Wisconsin still refer to him as Craig. And Laterra is a community near St. Augustine, Florida, where Eli Washtock was killed. While Eli Washtock lived in Wisconsin, there were a lot of people who could speak to what he was like and what he did. But after he moved to Florida, things got fuzzy. Professionally, we know that he worked at a few auto body shops. There appears to be a lot of gaps, but his family and friends attempted to provide more information on Eli's time in Florida. Did he go to school at some point? Like, did he try to go back and maybe, I don't know if he got his GED and then went to college? Or do you know what he, what he did on that front? He went back and got his GED. And um, after so many years of body work, he thought it was hurting his body um, himself. I mean, it was a very, very physical job. And he thought he would try pharmacy tech school. And he did go and graduate from there. Did he ever work as a pharmacy tech? No, he found out the money wasn't conducive to paying bills, so he stayed in the auto body. Did you ever hear him talk about other people down there? No, not at all. He pretty much just kept to his family. So as far as like if he wasn't working and wasn't doing things with the family, you didn't know any like what else he was doing? No. While in St. Augustine, Eli's life wasn't always bliss. Not long after their move to Florida, in 2009, Eli Washtock filed for a temporary protective order against Katrina. Eli claimed that she slapped their son. Katrina denies these accusations. This appeared to occur around the time the couple was gearing up for a custody battle over their two children. Katrina wanted to move back to Wisconsin where she had a job opportunity and family. Eli wanted to stay in St. Augustine. The judge ultimately denied Eli's request for a protective order based on lack of evidence. According to what Eli told his mom, He was living in a house at first until she, the way they left was her mother flew down and they loaded up a semi with everything except the kitchen table and a couch and left, not telling him. They did that when he wasn't home and he got home and he, couldn't find his kids, and it was pretty heartbreaking. Eli's mom is talking about the house John and I visited on Ardmore Street. You know, he'd try to call and see where the kids were and whatnot all, but she didn't answer the phone, so it was probably a good week before he found out what was going on. They hated each other's guts. Who's that? Katrina and Eli. With Katrina and the children in Wisconsin, the child custody issues continued there. It's not clear whether the courts decided or the couple came to an agreement, but the two children lived with Katrina. Eli moved back to Wisconsin around 2011 for about a year to be closer with the kids, but he eventually moved back to St. Augustine alone. Between the breakups and the custody issues, there were significant fractures in the couple's relationship. Around the time their son became a teenager, he started having trouble in school. Eventually, Katrina agreed for their son to move to St. Augustine and live with Eli. They lived in a furnished one-bedroom apartment in the gated golf course community of Laterra at World Golf Village. His son slept on a pull-out couch. The hope was that Eli could turn his son around. I'm en route to Katrina's house. Eli's ex-girlfriend, Katrina, 
Van Knocker now goes by Amador, and I'm hoping that she will speak to me about Eli and what happened. It may be the only uh, audio we get from this interview. I visited Katrina's house to see if she could shed more light on Eli's life. I pulled up to their property and saw Eli's son outside. How you doing? Is your mom home? She is? Um, I'm going to knock on the door to see if she's mailed Hi, my name's John. Uh, we're doing a podcast about uh, U.S. boyfriend Eli Rothschild, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk to me about it. Katrina Van Knocker declined our request for an interview and asked me to leave her property. Hmm, that's interesting. Typically, the family and friends of homicide victims usually want to talk and get the word out. Were you expecting this reaction? Yes, or something similar. Eli and Katrina were not on the best terms right before he died. But still, this is the father of her children. I hoped Katrina would want to help, but she wanted nothing to do with us. When Eli Washtock began his unofficial investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death in early 2018, he gave the impression to people in St. Augustine that he had a lot of money. This was a surprise to Eli's family. According to his dad, Eli's auto body business in Wisconsin wasn't doing well before he left for St. Augustine, and it doesn't appear he achieved any great financial success after he moved to Florida. Was Eli working in a, at a body shop as far as you, you knew? As far as I knew, yes. Yeah. And he had worked at a lot of them. This last part, I assumed, and, and told me different, but I assumed he had some job in Jacksonville where he traveled from shop to shop. Told me he hadn't worked for, what, six months? Last six months. And I didn't know that. By the way, we're bleeping out Eli's son's name throughout the podcast. According to his son, Eli didn't have a job for quite some time prior to his murder. If he wasn't working the last six months of his life, how was he paying his bills and paying for all the experts he hired to look into the Michelle O'Connell case? We asked Eli's mom, where could Eli be getting the money? Not a clue. Unless he was fixing stuff or... Or said he was in real estate or yeah, something. Yeah, but we what had no that, proof of that. Yeah, or what that means, we don't know. There was some condo that thought he owned, but we couldn't believe that because he wouldn't, either was told wrong or he interpreted it wrong. By this time, Eli's parents were divorced and both of them were sending him money independently. That meant that Eli could get money from one parent without the other one knowing as long as they didn't talk to each other. So how do you think that he was supporting himself during that time? Usually by calling me or his mother. Do you think you were giving him enough money to support him? Between the both of us, probably. Okay. Yeah, because I know every month it was like clockwork. He was needing rent money and rent where he was wasn't cheap. Right. And I knew, uh, you know, there was a couple months when I didn't, when his mother did. And right before this happened, I think November of the previous year that he was shot, my ex-wife sent him down 7,000 bucks for a car. She wanted him to get a car because the car was right. shot. So Eli's dad sent him money to cover the rent. 
his mom actually sent him $8,000 to buy a car closer to the middle of 2018, along with sending him checks each month. Was this enough? I created a simplified income statement for Eli for 2018 based on the money his parents provided him and estimated expenses. How much money do you think Eli's parents gave him the last year of his life? According to what Eli's mom and dad told me, they sent him somewhere between $30,000 and $40,000 during 2018. Wow, that is a lot of money. I know, and his parents are far from wealthy. They didn't seem alarmed by his request for money each month. What did you come up with for Eli's expenses? This required some creative estimating because I wasn't able to review his bank or credit card statements. Based on what I could gather and what I was told, I put Eli's living expenses, including for his son, at somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $55,000 for 2018. I think he spent somewhere between three dollars and $25,000 on experts for his investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death. Those are some pretty wide ranges. Yes, this is based on a lot of uncertainty. We just don't have a lot of information on how much and what Eli was spending his money on. On the lower end of my estimates, Eli could be covering his living expenses and afford the experts with the money his parents gave him. Though I think there's a very slim probability that Eli spent so little money during the last year of his life. What kind of assumptions went into the lower end of your cost estimates? Well, they were some pretty aggressive assumptions. It would mean that he didn't pay for health insurance for himself and his son. All utilities were included in his rent. He was incredibly frugal when purchasing food and clothes, and he only began to pay the experts he hired. This is sort of a best case scenario. I think it would have required substantially more money for Eli to maintain his lifestyle, living in a gated golf course community in St. Augustine, Florida. I agree. This is an unlikely scenario. It's much more likely Eli spent somewhere between fifty dollars and $75,000 during the last year of his life to cover his living expenses and finance his investigation into Michelle's death. And if this is the case, then there's a fairly significant gap between the money's coming in and the money's going out. So where could he have gotten the additional money? I have asked everyone close to Eli this question and haven't gotten any plausible explanations. Yet, if Eli had a job during the first six months of 2018, this could go a long way toward reducing the financial gap, though it likely would not close it. What other forms of income could he have? Did he get a bank loan or maybe there was another person in Eli's life that we just don't know about? It's really hard to believe that Eli lived alone with his son and didn't interact with anybody else. I have a feeling there is someone else who is out there that we just don't know about. There might be, but Eli's son says there was no one else in Eli's life. But even if there was another person, and whether that person was keeping Eli's finances afloat is a whole other story. We can only speculate. In 2009, Craig Washtock changed his name to Ellie Marie Washtock. Yet, almost 10 years later, Eli still presented himself as male. We asked his mom and sister about this. Yeah, he was he, sorry that he changed his name. Absolutely, yeah. And wanted, he wished he never would have changed it. Yeah, he and he told me he, he doesn't, he didn't even identify as being trans. Eli told his mother and sister that he wanted to change his name back to Craig. Yeah, he wanted to change it back. He told me the reason he didn't because he didn't have the money yeah. to change it back. It's not clear if Eli was being completely forthright with his family. 
Actions Eli took in previous years caused us a lot of confusion. Apparently, he had some ongoing internal struggles leading up to his death, though there is no evidence to suggest any of this had anything to do with why he was murdered. Eli Washtock lived in a gated golf course community. We wanted to get more information on how his complex was set up. Here is Eli's childhood friend, Matt Utek, talking about his experience visiting at World Golf Village. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty fancy compared to what I'm used to seeing around here. Just, you know, neat architecture, the whole gated community, the way the buildings look. Could you uh, get in? Did you have to be, like, buzzed in to get in? Um, when we get there, he'd have to, uh, um, like, take us to the, the gatehouse or whatever, and they'd give us, a, they'd get our IDs and stuff, they'd give us, like, a temporary pass. Was there any kind of, like, security in the complex at all, or just at the, around the perimeter? Not that I recall noticing. We later learned that the doors to Eli's condo building were, in fact, locked. They required a key fob to enter the building. Five days before Eli Washtock's murder, he put his son in a separate condo. The condo was two floors below his and in a much different part of the building. No one knew about the second condo until after Eli's death. Then information came out that Eli moved his son to the second condo because he feared for his safety. He believed someone was after him. When I talked with Eli's mom and sister in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, they mentioned the second apartment. Once again, we're bleeping out the names of Eli's children. That he had an apartment rented Monday through Friday, I think is how it went. The weekends weren't included. So was due to leave on Friday, the day after his death. Due to leave? To go back To up. go back to uh, Craig's apartment. It was just that week he had rented the apartment for so he'd only rented, it wasn't an ongoing thing, it was only for no. those five days? That's yeah. as far as I know. Yes, it was only for those five days. Here's Eli's dad talking about his understanding of how the second condo worked. My understanding was he just moved in there a week before. Most of the time he spent upstairs with his dad, except, you know, when it came time to go to bed, he, would, he went down to his apartment. And then when that time for... My son to take him to school, he'd, he'd go upstairs and get his dad, and then they'd go off to school. There are only two reasons I can think of as to why Eli would put his son in a different condo, and neither of them is for his son's safety. Eli lived in a one-bedroom apartment within a gated community. He had a firearm, and he knew how to use it. The one place Eli could most easily protect himself and his son was inside their small condo. Having his son walk back and forth by himself between the condos exposed him to outside danger. His son slept alone in a condo, which was much more risky than having him sleep in the condo with him. It simply defies logic and basic security measures to let his son walk back and forth if he was concerned for his safety. Not only did this not make any sense, it's also pretty expensive too. Eli's dad said that the condo cost $1,600 to rent out just for one week. That's a lot of money. What are your thoughts on why Eli put his son in a separate condo? The two lived in a one-bedroom condo. There was no privacy. If someone new came into Eli's life and he wanted to spend time alone with this person, moving his son to a separate condo made sense. 
The second possibility is that the close quarters caused problems with Eli and his son's relationship. Here's Eli's sister, Jessica, on the topic. The other thing that I had heard was that they were having some trouble relationship-wise between the two of them and weren't getting along, which that's, I mean, that's kind of been his whole life. He's always had difficulties until he went down by Craig or Eli. Then that seemed to change things for him. That was his 180. Continue on Registry Boulevard for one and a half miles. John and I drove down to St. Augustine, Florida to check out the Laterra condominiums at the World Golf Village. Oh, so this is a gate. This is going to be another gate. Yeah. There's cameras. So our plan is go direct. I'll have to ask him, hey, did you were you working when you he leave. was killed? You leave. Okay. This gated community is fortified by forest and wetlands. The only real way in or out are by two security guard stations. Javier and I walked up to the security guard. Hey, we're doing a podcast and we're uh, investigating a case that happened here in St. John's County that happened in your complex with Eli Washtock. And I was wondering, like, were you working when that when his uh, murder occurred? No. This guard was fairly new, so he had never heard about the homicide that occurred here a few months back on January 31st, 2019. But still, we wanted to know how tight security was here at the World Golf Village. There's only two possibilities. The killer either got through security that night or was already inside. As far as security goes around here, like- A car pulls up to the security gate. The license reader scans his tags and the driver hands his ID to the guard. So like right now, like like that guy showed his ID to get in? Everybody can do it. Not everybody? So what about pizza delivery guys? Like, and what about cops and stuff like that? Do they? Cops could just go in and out, like no questions asked, like they don't have to log in or anything? I was wondering how else someone might sneak into the gated community. Then I remembered that there's also a golf course attached to this property. Could that be how the killer slipped in? So there's a golf course here, right? At this place? Can people get in through the golf course? Oh, okay, so they still gotta come here, right? The guard says no. They would still need to sign in through the gate. When we started this whole thing, everyone said that Eli lived his last days in a state of paranoia. He feared for his life. But now that we know more context, we have to ask, is this even true? This is Matt and Nick Butek talking about the last time they spoke with Eli. Did you pick up on any kind of concern or sense of urgency or anything with him? Nope. Not at all. No. And that's the weird thing, because that's something he would have reached out to you and me for, yeah. for, for sure. We asked Eli's mother and sister the same question. Was Eli fearful during his final days? In your last conversation with him, did he say anything like at all that you would consider like ominous in any way? No, not at all. Yeah, just out of the blue one day he called me, um, it was like in August, and he had said just so you know if something ever happens to me I want to be buried at San Lorenzo Cemetery and he wanted to be buried with Taco. Taco was Eli's deceased cat. And I said, what brings this up? And he said he 
was nearly in an accident on the way to Jacksonville. Eli told both Michelle O'Connell's mother, Patty, and St. Augustine Community Watchdog, Ed Slavin, that Jeremy Banks ran him off the road in his police cruiser. No one had any specifics or details on this incident. Patty did mention that Eli's son was present when it occurred. According to various people, Eli's son initially acknowledged that this encounter occurred. However, that changed. I asked Eli's dad, Jim Washtalk, what his grandson said to him about this incident. No. No. Now, also said no, that didn't happen. What did you say? I asked him that. I said, did you guys get run off the road by him? He says, no. He said that, no, we didn't get run off the road. But we do have reason to believe that this incident most likely did happen to some degree. There was some type of encounter between Jeremy Banks and Eli Washtalk. Putnam County Sheriff's Office interviewed Patty O'Connell in connection with Eli's murder investigation. Patty told investigators about Jeremy Banks allegedly running Eli off the road. Detective Peters from Putnam County says, oh, it's not what you think. And then he came back about a week later. He says, oh, yeah, that's not what you think. It's not what you think. Though Eli told both Patty and Ed Slavin that Jeremy Banks ran him off the road, the truth may be much less ominous and intentional. We turn to the idea that if Eli was threatened, how would he respond? We asked his sister and mother if he would back down. And that's, and that's where I get so confused because then we're being told from the police that he's this religious person. He would never, never hurt a soul. Literally, that is not who my brother is. My brother is, he'll puff up his chest and do what's right. I mean, whether he's right or not, he's, he's not this, you know, religious monk that walks around with his arms in his sleeves and doesn't do anything about anything. He, he defends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, he would defend anybody close to him. Mm-hmm. He'd stand up for him, and he'd mm -hmm. he'd fight for him if he had to. Mm -hmm. He wasn't docile. He was, yeah, physically would defend somebody. Yeah, absolutely. No one in Wisconsin knew anything about Eli receiving any threats or being intimidated in any way prior to his death. If they had, they would have helped him in some way. Eli's sister Jessica reached out to Eli a month before he was murdered. She decided they needed to reconnect. I think it's just, you know, once you get to a certain age, you just kind of realize you see your parents aging. He's down there and I'm up here. And so obviously there's those concerns as your parents age and just like trying to figure out how do you build a relationship back? You know, as kids, we were young kids, we were good. And then once we got to our teenage years, it just went south trying to repair that and come back together as brother and sister because, you know, at some point in time, we're going to need to be there to be able to make decisions for mom and dad. And we asked Jessica if Eli seemed different, just very calm and very well-spoken and mature. He was just more of an adult. And, you know, we talked about what, you know, some of the things that happened when we were kids. The last month of Eli's life was filled with a lot of regrets by his friends and family. They should have called him more. They should have asked more questions. They should have sensed that something was wrong. Eli's family traveled to Florida for his funeral. While there, the stress caused Jim Washtock, Eli's dad, to feel ill. Five o'clock the next morning, the, the girl behind the desk was banging on my door saying that 
His wife was taking him to the hospital via ambulance because they think he's having a heart attack, and he did. The family raced to St. Augustine, burdened with grief and filled with questions. Yet, most of those questions have still not been answered to this day. What happened to Eli's stuff? Who made sure his lease was terminated and his utilities were shut off? I, I do know that Jim had all of Craig's or Eli's mail forwarded to his address, but he had never gotten anything. Okay. And the police have his computer. It was like things were being done, but no one knew by whom. We asked Eli's mom and sister if anyone knew had come into Eli's life shortly before his murder. I knew he knew an older lady who was raising her granddaughter because her daughter died. That's what Craig had told me one time. He just thought that was so nice of grandma to take care of the daughter after, or the granddaughter after, but he didn't, you know, didn't tell me anything about how the daughter died or what was going on. I just knew that he had met this lady. January 30, 2019 was the day before Eli was murdered, at least according to his death certificate. Nothing seemed to indicate any kind of impending doom. He and his son grabbed fast food that evening. Again, we're bleeping out the names of Eli's children. Did you mention if anyone else was present on the night before Eli's death, that anybody was with them or went, I think they went to Burger King, did anybody go with them to Burger King or anything like that that you know mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we've asked him, did he have a friend? Was he, you know, anything? And, well, just me and dad. According to Eli's son, it was just him and his dad. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred. Did he talk, talk you through kind of like how he found his dad or anything like that? Or? He went to bed. He'd always go up by his dad at night. They'd go out to eat or would do whatever, and then he'd do his schoolwork, and then he'd go downstairs. And this was only for one week when he was put in that apartment. He said he went downstairs about 10 o'clock at night, uh, came back up because usually my son would go down and wake him up and get him ready for school and stuff, but he didn't. So my grandson went upstairs, door was quarter of the way open. The, uh, the lock itself was pulled off the, off the wall. This is what and he went saying? in, yeah, and he went in, he saw him laying there and he called 911. He called uh, 911 pretty close to once he found his dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he told me he went up there a little before seven their time. You know, and when I talked to him, I couldn't quite understand him at first. You know, he said, I, you know, he called me at work and I said, hey, what's up, no school today? And he says, no, no, I don't think so. I said, well, what are you and your dad going to do? He said, well, we're not going to do nothing. He said, you can't. I said, why not? He said, well, my dad's dead. Next time, on the season finale of Criminal Conduct, Eli Washtock died sometime between the evening of January 30th and the following morning. What do we know about the crime scene? This is Eli's son talking with the 911 operator. He did not do it intentionally. He did not, okay. Because there is a lot of gunfire. There is a lot of gunfire? He was shot more than once? And we talked with David Shore about his reaction to Eli Washtock's death. <laughs> 
I'm going to say I have one more question no, for you. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Uh, my last question for you would be, um, why did you choose not to investigate uh, Eli Washtock's death? You being St. John's County. Whose staff? Eli Washtock. Who's Eli Washtock? Eli Washtock, uh, Craig Washtock, or Ellie Marie Washtock. The- oh, that, that guy. That's next week on Criminal Conduct. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money. Me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he, just, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members anyone living a lie search for pretend wherever you get your podcast a special thanks to our executive producer advertise cast and to ruby rose fox for allowing us to use her song bury the body her music is available anywhere you can purchase music If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com Creative Babble.